also sign up for a couple of couples with meals. Um, Sandhill Lake campers, the down payment is due uh, if you're going to middle school camp, is due today. Senior high down payment next week, so if you're going to camp, need that. Um, on Wednesday, July 16th, you'll notice in your bulletin it says first impressions. We're going to be revamping our first impressions, kind of getting uh, ready for the fall. If you're wondering what that is, first impressions ministry, that is leaders, waivers, parking lot people, or you know, people that can maybe help people when it's raining. Um, but we're going to be kind of revamping our first impressions ministry. And so if you want to be involved with that, want more information about that, Wednesday, July 16th at 7, here at the church. And uh, so hopefully you can make it. Um, also, the rescue ministry fundraiser, the car wash and drop feed, there's a sign up in the back if you want to be a part of that on July 25th. So, and, and there's other announcements that the women's brunch and uh, different things going on. So, familiarize yourself with the bulletin, take it home if you want, write it on your calendar. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, that uh, your word is true. And uh, once again, Jesus, I was just reminded of when you were standing before Pilate. And you said, for this reason, for this cause, I was born to testify the truth. And that you yourself, you've been said before, that you are the truth. And that your word is true. And Lord, as we dive in today, Lord God, we look at different questions that people put forward uh, and they submitted, Lord, I pray again that you would get glory, that all eyes would be upon you, and that, Lord, ultimately we would become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for all the submissions to the questions. Um, it was awesome. We, we had some really great questions, and so I'm excited to jump in and take a look at them. Um, if you're wondering where my wife is, because I said she was going to be helping me, um, I'm doing the first two weeks, and then she's going to help me with the last two. We had uh, questions submitted from all ages, and I could just tell my handwriting, unless that was uh, your husband that wrote like, like a caveman or something. Um, but no, we had some great questions. So they're all ages submitted questions. Um, and then probably the big question you have is, is, is he going to cover my question today? Well, I don't know. We'll see. That's why I planned it. That's why, that's why it, it, you need to plan on being there. If for whatever reason I'm thinking enough today and you're not here, of course, you're here, but if you're not here, um, and you miss out, sorry. So you got to be here if you want your question. Uh, so if you didn't hear yours today, it could be next week, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. I'm not going to tell you. So you have to. Keep you guessing. And so there are the relevant topics came through, like hard to understand Bible verses, uh, science and faith questions. Uh, there was relational topic questions. Um, and so I'm excited about looking at that. Some doctrinal questions, and then even the supernatural stuff about the supernatural. So thanks again for submitting those, and uh, so we're going to see where we go today. But as I stated when we first announced this series, that we will be looking at these questions and we will be tackling them from a biblical point of view. It was really fun that you guys give this question to me because it makes me go study, it makes me go read, it makes me go kind of work and, and, and kind of dig out scriptures, and so that's good for me. But we're going to go from a biblical point of view. It doesn't do you any good or me any good if I'm just up here giving you my opinions. 
In fact, as we begin today, I want to start the series by answering the very first question is also a foundation to how we're going to look at each question. So it's a, it's a very good opening question, and here it is. Let's read that on. How do we discern contemporary issues? How do we know what is the, it's kind of a two-part, but how do we know what is the Word of God and what is false? It's a great question, right? And so this kind of two-part is kind of also, whoever gave that question, you are the one who set the foundation of the sermon series. Good for you. I don't know who did these, these are all anonymous. So, but it's a great question to start a series. As followers of Jesus, the Word of God must be our standard of truth. Absolutely and essentially. It's essential to us to know Jesus ultimately, but also to know what is true and what is not. How to discern what is true and what is false is found by knowing the Word of God. If you haven't noticed, or if you live maybe under a rock somewhere, the Word of God is under attack. It's... It is being, it, it, it's, it's being, you know, accused of being outdated, it's out of touch, it's old-fashioned, it's constantly being called into question. Or people say, well, it's a good book, it's a good moral guide, and, well, you know, can you, can you really adhere to it as a, a definitive truth, or is it just does it have some truth in it, and, you know, it's kind of this nice moral book. It's either, it's either truth or it is not, and that's what kind of is called into question, can we, can we take it as a standard of truth or not? And that's kind of where we are at in culture. Many believe that it isn't totally true, or it's open to your own interpretation, that it's filled with contradictions. And I submit to this, that there are difficult things to understand in Scripture, but that doesn't negate the fact that it contains the very words of God. The problem that most have when they call it into question is they don't really know it. They might have thoughts about it. They might have memorized some parts of it. You know, when the devil was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, what did he do? What was the part of what he did? You remember? He quoted some scripture, didn't he? That doesn't mean that he had heard the truth. But most people, they don't truly know it. This one said, oh, well, the psalmist said, I will hide your word in my heart to truly know it. There was a lot of people surveyed that called the Bible into question, but then there was a follow-up question that says, do you read it or do you study it regularly? And they said no. But we can emphatically say that we don't believe that it's completely true. And I'm thinking, that, that's not even scientific. Study it. That's why I, I, I appreciate guys like Lee Strobel or Josh McDowell. These two guys, Josh McDowell was an atheist. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter who was agnostic at best. Both of them, they said that, and, and most of you know the rest of the story, but they gave their hearts to Christ on doing investigation of the Word of God. Is it true or is it not? Is Jesus who he said he was or is, it, or is he not? And so they both are doing, they said, you know, you have to have integrity to study. Lee Strobel, in fact, as an investigative reporter, was going to try to investigatively deny the truth and reality of the scriptures. And he said, but doing that, I had to study it. I had to study what it meant. I had to study it in context. I had to study historical things. But as I looked throughout scripture, you know what his conclusion was? He gave his heart to Christ. 
is because if you follow it, it either, and he's been one of the ones that said, you know, I think he quoted Lewis when he said, either Jesus is who he said he was, and he's the biggest liar that ever lived on planet Earth. And so what do you do with the information? In a couple of scriptures, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Is that true or is it not? What Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, all Scripture. How much Scripture? All Scripture is quadrant and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That's either true or it's not. And some might probably say those were written by men, but yes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, what do we get out of Scripture? We get Jesus. Jesus is called the living Word. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, chapter W, talking about Jesus. And the Word was made flesh and He made His dwelling upon us. So Scripture always points us to Him. The Old Testament story, it points us to Him. It points us to becoming more like Him, more Christ-like. So the application Scripture is intended to make us more like Jesus. So do we really believe those things about God's Word? I believe everything we deal with in life can be found in its pages. And it is God's Word, His life-breathing Word to us. If it is open to whatever interpretation we come up with, then where would we, where would we find our standards? Where would we find our truth? Is truth open to however each individual feels like it should be, or is there a standard of truth? Because if I get to pick my own truth, then the sky's the limit, isn't it? Nobody can tell you what's true or what's not. Either God's word is true or it isn't. When we get to, when we, we don't get to choose whatever standard we want, God is the standard. And here's the thing, if it's filled with contradictions and confusion and it's outdated, then God is fooling. Because it would God, God would have left us to our own devices to try to figure things out on our own. Oh yeah, after about 2,000 years, that book's going to be outdated. You really don't even need to use it. You can use parts of it, but good luck with that. It has stood the test of time. That is why He gave us His Word. It is written by men, but it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because I, I submit to you this, if we come up with our own standard of truth and we say, well, that, you know, you can't put that standard, there is no one standard of truth. If that is true, then I, 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 I submit to you this, we are no better than the time of the book of Judges when there was warnings to God's people. Remember the last verse in the book of Judges that says, the people did what was right in their own eyes. That wasn't a compliment, and that wasn't noble. It was, they were living in a free-for-all. Idolatry, do whatever you want. It was, they became very hedonistic. If it feels good, do it. Nobody can tell you what to do or how to do it. You put your own definitions. You do what is right in your own eyes. And that grieves the heart of God. And that is why the prophets spoke over and over to them to come back to God. Because it wasn't right. When we read the Word of God, we have to factor in context. 
People have done some dangerous things with Scripture by not adhering to context. They'll take a Scripture and then they make a doctrine out of it. You can't do that. It's dangerous. Sometimes we make doctrine. Doctrine is you know, the basis of what we believe. And sometimes we make doctrine on things that weren't intended to make doctrine. Paul to Timothy, he said, you must guard sound doctrine, teach sound doctrine, and orthodoxy, right teaching. The standard in which we should live. Let me give you an example. Like in Scripture, we're told, you know, modesty. You think this word modesty. What does it mean to be modest? Because that, that's kind of the rule, of the principle of modesty. What some people have done is they take cultural implications and say, well, that's what it means to be modest. So then, now I have to wear a certain outfit. You know, the ladies have to wear a dress down to the ankles because that's what it means to be modest because in that time, or whatever. So then what we do is we take the principle of modesty, we make a different idea out of it, then we make a legalistic doctrine out of it. And we miss the heart of modesty. Do you understand what I'm saying? The heart of modesty is, from, from Scripture, is not to adhere to a cultural mindset, but a principle of modesty to stay covered. Don't be a stumbling block. Don't flaunt your thoughts, if I can put it in today's words. And you miss the heart of it when you make a legalistic doctrine. Does that help? Does that make sense? So when we read about modesty, be careful that you're not putting well, what that looks like. And then we have dress codes, and that's how legalism happens. I dealt with this months ago when, uh, you know, growing up, and there was kind of this holiness movement, and, you know, um, the ladies, remember the big beehive hairdos? Well, you know, it's like, it was cultural, you know, because they had that kind of beehive hairdo, but the ladies in the church took it up to a whole other level, man. They were like 6'5 with their, their beehives. And they had the dresses that covered every square inch, and that was holy. And, and, and then they would look down on people that weren't dressed like that and became this legalistic rule by an era of time as opposed to, you know, you're really holy there. Or men, if you're in church, you need to be wearing a tie and a suit because that's holy. Well, I'm like, who wrote that? And it was just, at some point, adhered to it, that's what it means to be holy. I'm like, if we're, if we're gonna, if we're gonna do that, we better go back to find out what Jesus wore and let's all be on robes and sandals. Wouldn't that be truly holy? No. Because it's not about, it, it, then you miss the principle of modesty and things to get at. And so when we look at scripture, right, sound teaching, modesty, that principle of holy, then we look at what was cultural law. Or ceremonial law. We, we don't adhere to ceremonial and cultural law of the, of the Bible. But there are foundation principles that we adhere to, like life law. We're given life law. That never changes. Thou shalt not kill or murder. That never changes. That wasn't just a cultural law. But then, in cultural ceremonial law, remember in the Jews they had, they couldn't, the men couldn't cut the ringlets and hair. Well, then all of a sudden you say, all right, guys, next week, start throwing them out. Or at least get a hat that has the things on it so that you can look that way. That was a 
ceremonial cultural law that we don't adhere to. So don't miss the heart of God's life law found all throughout Scripture. And so that is our standard. We find that standard of truth. All right. Is that a good start? Here we go. Here's the next one. In Job, this is the second question. In Job, why is Elihu not mentioned when God reduced Job to three friends? Good question. If you've ever read the book of Job, uh, the context of Job, let me go ahead and say it, it's a study on suffering, trust, and the sovereignty of God. There is a great mystery that shrouds the book of Job. It is, it's a hard book to read. Because you see God allowing the enemy to touch this man. And that makes us kind of nervous and saying, well, if God is allowing that, but God allows those things, but it is a study of stuff and trust in the sovereignty of God. Um, Pastor Hutton, who was here last week, he kind of touched in on it about, in this, in this uh, passage about suffering in the book of Job. And in fact, if there's a little commercial, in the new year, in 2015, we're going to be doing a six-week series all about suffering. We're going to be looking at suffering in an in-depth way. Um, I'm really excited about that. Hold on to that. That's going to be very good. Um, how we can come alongside people. What our own people, the different levels of suffering, because suffering is very real. When in context, in this book, here's Job. The devil comes before God and has a debate concerning Job and how righteous he is. Have you considered my servant Job? God says to the enemy, and the enemy says, yeah, but you know, you, you protect him, and, and obviously he's going to serve you, but if you let me take from him, he'll, he'll curse you. So God allows him to take all of his wealth, his riches, his children die tragically all in one day. I mean, all these messengers are coming, these servants are coming, and his life is falling apart right before his eyes. And yet he maintains his faith, he has some questions, it is very tough. There's no sugarcoating this. It's not like he just, you know, was okay with it. It was hard. But he maintains his faith. Then it happens again, and God says, Have you considered my servant Job with how righteous he is? He passed that test. He said, Yeah, you know, you allow me to take from him, but I guarantee if you strike him physically, if you let me strike him physically, he'll curse you. God says, Okay, but don't kill him. And so he has this horrible illness, boils all over him, so he is. Physically in a horrific place. He's at a place of mourning. And then he has three friends show up. And these friends, you don't need friends like this. And they have dialogue with Joe through the majority of the book. They go back and forth in this debate. They started out with great wisdom. It's the wisdom of the ages for someone who's suffering. You know what it says, what they did at first? They sat with him in silence for seven days. God help us. That's some wisdom right there. And then they made the mistake of opening their mouth. And then it all went downhill from there. They started trying to figure out why Job was going through what he was going through. They were trying to put all these spiritual twists and turns. And, well, it's got to be this. And, there has to be wickedness there. And, there has to be, and, they're, and they're putting all this stuff in, 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 in almost confining God to a box, well, we know God. And it was a presumption of God was one of the greatest sins that came out of that. It's 
surely you're going through this because of, and they all were trying to find that formula, that equation of why he was doing it. In fact, they started making hard and fast rules about suffering. They were putting their own personal doctrine out there, if you will. They had argued that suffering is basically punishment for sin and prosperity is a reward for the righteous. Now, that can be true, but not always. There is a mystery to suffering. And we get into trouble when we think we've got God all figured out. And that was their biggest problem. The Bible says this, that His ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That's never going to change. We have not plummeted the depths of God's knowledge. We are like a grain of sand, and He is like the universe. That's how vast He is different than us. We get into trouble when we bring God to our level of understanding. That happens in culture. That's why people call into question about their own truth, and they make up their own rules, and they do what is right in their own eyes. And we basically bring God to me. God's like me. God's down on my level. No, he's not. And he'll never be. He's so much vastly bigger than us, and our greatest approach to him is humility. And here's the thing. There will, there will be things in this life that we don't understand. And that's why it's also a, not just a study in, in suffering, but it's a study in trust. It's a study in God's sovereignty. So, Job rightly revealed this through his discourse with the spirit that there is a mystery to life. Sometimes the wicked prosper. I mean, he talked about that. Sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes the righteous suffer. And we all have dealt with that. Why is so and so? It seems like they're just living for the world, the devil, they don't care, and it seems like that everything they touch is gold. Don't try to figure it out. Psalm 73, Asaph had that same discouragement. I mean, he said, I was so vexed by that, I almost went off the cliff. He said, until I saw their end. He said, then I'm reminded of God's grace. So Job rightly revealed that there's time the wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. The problem is that Job stops there. That's why God rebukes him at the end. He argued that, you know, he, he argued that it would have been better that I had never been born, and that sometimes God is just arbitrary in his dealings with man. In other words, the suffering, this is a waste of time and expenses. That's why sitting in a place of holy, sitting in a place of suffering, sometimes, you know, and, and suffering can be physical, sometimes you're in a holding pattern, and that's a part of your suffering. You don't get it, you're stuck in a job, you're stuck here, and it just feels like this is just a waste of time, it's arbitrary, it makes no sense, and God is saying there's never wasted time in the life of a believer. There's never wasted time. And that's kind of how Job approached. He just think this time would have been better had it never been born. He doesn't curse God, but he's trying to wrap his mind around the things of God and think, well, if God's a certain way, then it's just arbitrary, that it all, it all kind of needs to make sense to me. This is where Job, have you ever been there? You understand what Job is facing? That you, you just wish that it made sense? And yeah, I'm the only guy. Okay. Here's the greater reality. The greater reality is that God is always speaking. God is always working. God is always revealing things. 
even in the mysterious. In Jesus, nothing is wasted. It may not always make sense, but nothing is wasted. God can get glory out of anything and everything. He can. I know that that's hard to imagine, but He can. And I say this, He doesn't cause everything. He doesn't cause everything, but He can use anything to reveal His grace and His mercy and His glory through us. And so, getting back to the question, Elijah is to the three friends. They, he and his friends go back and forth, and they feel like they just don't, you know, they're debating with Joe. They feel like they just can't get anywhere with him, you know, and they're just kind of shaking their heads at him. And, and, and I mean, now he's just devastated by his three friends. And this young man named Elihu shows up and he talks to Job and his friends. At the end of it all, God rebukes Job and his three friends for their errors, but he does not rebuke Elihu. Why? Was he perfect? No, he wasn't perfect. In fact, if you read it, he's young. That's why he's waiting his turn. He's heard what's going on. He's a little bit blessed. He says, kind of like, I'm overflowing and I'm bursting. I've got to just burst out what I need to say right now. He's a little full of himself, but that doesn't negate that he is telling some truth. Job 42.7 says this, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because this, because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. You've not spoken the truth about me. <coughs> so again, they were trying to make their own doctrine. They were trying to speak in the place of God. No, no, God would, God would do this, or God wouldn't do this. We know God. God would do this. And then the presumption was just amazing. And God says, you haven't spoken the truth about me, and that's why you're being reviewed. But what does Elijah do when he, when you watch what he says, he justifies God instead of man, as Job did. And he also sees that there can be purpose in suffering. And so it's this correct theology that God does not rebuke him. And it's the lies about God that God rebukes the three friends. And so that's why he does not rebuke him. The end summary of Job. I love this about Job because at the end, God says this to him. And I want you to grab hold of this. Because, you know, he's had this debate, blah, blah, blah. You know, he speaks and you get to the end. And God says, Job, you have some questions for me. Buckle up, champ. I've got some questions for you. And God begins to say, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he goes on this creative order of saying, where were you? Were you there? Do you know all about me? In other words, God is kind talking Isaiah 55 to me. My ways are so much higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Job, you are a grain of sand, and I am the universe, but I do love you. Don't presume that you know all about me. Don't presume that you've plummeted my, the, the depth of the knowledge of who I am. And here's what Job says. This is such an awesome thing. Job says, my ears have heard of you, but now I have seen you. In Job 42. 
In other words, I thought I knew you, but I didn't. My ears have heard of you. I've heard things about you, but now I've seen you. I, I get it now. And he placed himself in the greatest place of humility before the God of truth. And I'm thinking, we need to get that. We need to understand that. I, I've heard things about you. God, forgive me for making my own personal doctrine, reading this book, listening to this TV preacher, and making all kinds of weird doctrine. And now I stand before you. I've heard of you, but now I see you because I want to know you through you. Greatest place of humility. That's how Job ends. <clears throat> Question three. Here we go. Can you explain the parable found in Luke 16, 1 through 15? Why was the rich Lord commending the steward that he fired after he gave away more of his property? Have you ever read that? It's one of the hardest kind of parables to get your head on. Jesus tells this parable, and there's kind of this interesting wording there, and it seems to be commending, well, Let's look at it in depth. Hopefully you can read that. If not, I'll read it to you. Luke 16. Jesus told the disciples, there was a rich man whose manager, he had the owner, the manager, was accused of wasting his possessions. Let me start by right there. Jesus will do a lot of parables about how we manage, about faithfulness, right? And so there's an owner, there's a manager. So he called him and he asked him, What's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to death. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will, will welcome me into their houses. So he divides the scheme. So he called into each one of his master's debtors. He asked the person, How much do you owe? My master. 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. Currency was a little differently back then. So the manager said, right, let's sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended, this is the question, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. People of the world, people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so that when it is gone, you will be welcome into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have... So if you have been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who love money have heard this. Remember, he's talking to his disciples, but I think he's talking loud enough for them to hear that he would do that sometimes. And they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of God, but God knows your heart in the eyes of others. But God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. In other words, keep your eyes on the eternal, not just the worldly. So what's going on? Again, as with most parables, Jesus is pointing us to importance of how we steward or manage the life we've been given. In this story, he's using a negative illustration to point to a greater reality. 
having an eternal perspective rather than an earthly one. So the question that the hard to understand portion of this is when the master commends the servant on his shrewdness. This does not mean that he's okay with what he did. The manager was cunning, conniving, and dishonest. It's like you have to give him an A for effort for shrewdness. That's kind of what's going on here. It's like, wow, that guy's conniving, but he's pretty shrewd. And so he's commending his shrewdness. When he, was, when he learned he was about to lose his job because he was dishonest and wasteful, he decided to cover his assets. And he went to the best customers to cut their debt that they owed the boss. Why did he do this? Obviously, after he was kicked out of his company for mismanagement, he would go to one of the customers that owed him a favor, and hopefully they would remember his actions and give him a job. I mean, who wouldn't want that if somebody came up to you and you go, I know that you owe someone for 10000 on behalf of him. Um, it's just 5000 now. What would you and I do? We wouldn't ask the questions. We'd be jumping up and down saying, thank you, here's the check. I'm done. I'm free and clear. And so he's trying to work the system to gain favor with those people. And then when the time to be fired, even his boss said, I've got to hand it to you. And you're conning devious and despicable, but you're pretty shrewd. It's like he's saying, if only shrewdness could be used for good. It's like when you see something in someone. Have you ever, and we, we dealt with this, you know, with kids, and you know, you see leadership potential in them, but they're kind of rebellious, and you go, man, I, if we could channel that in the right direction, what kind of leader would they make? You're not, you're not saying, I commend them on their rebellion. You're saying, I commend them on it's being, it's somewhat saying, I see something in there. I commend them on their leadership abilities, but that doesn't mean that I am advocating the rebellion. Does that make sense? Terry told us about hearing this, of uh, this guy, uh, you know, just, we were talking about this the other day. And this guy had kind of in his home, he would have these kids go out and steal these very expensive bikes. He would pay them $100, they would steal very expensive bikes, and he would call them and I'd just sell them. These are like $2,000 bikes. Not good, right? At least say that's not good, right? We're all on the same page. You guys aren't going, that's a good idea. I hate that. And then you think, well, if you could take that and say, man, God's giving you a brain and he's giving you some, like, almost entrepreneurial ideas. That's not good what you're doing, but if you could channel that in the right direction, you could probably become a millionaire in a very honest way. But you've got to commend him on his, even in his conniving, you've got to say, well, at least you have plan. And so let's get to, in this parable, Jesus isn't suggesting that we use dishonest business practices but he's suggesting that we can learn something from the clever way common people operate. And so Jesus recognizes those two kinds of people. He divides the entire human race, and what does he say? These are called people of the world and people of the light. He's saying this present world is not all there is. There is another world. This world is temporary. The other world is eternal. This world is physical. The other world is spiritual. 
Millions of people live their lives as if this world is all there ever will be. And they devote their entire lives to getting ahead, accumulating all the toys that they can get, striving to be more comfortable. And on the other hand, the people of the, people of the light, they have a personal relationship with God. They understand that we're living for something bigger than ourselves. People of the light. That's why the Bible says God is light. And in Him, you know, God is God. We are followers of the light. We're living in this world, but we know that this world is not all there is. And that's why we're called foreigners and strangers in a land, because we shouldn't be totally comfortable with this world. There's more after we live this life in its full and then go to the next life. But in spite of this, Jesus said we, should, we could learn to be a little shrewder in the ways of the world without becoming like the world. Christians can tend to be gullible and naive. They'll get burnt on a great offer because that person seemed like a Christian. Well, they were so nice. And it wouldn't be Christian if I was if I had rejected the offer. Reject the offer. Do some investigation. That's the shrewdness. Find out a little bit. If you watch these infomercials, you understand that we're gullible. You know, then no, that thing won't help you in this way. No, you cannot lose 20 pounds in two days. You can't. Stop trying. Unless you get a massive stomach flu. Then maybe. I'll give you that one for free. But we can be very gullible, and, and, or we get burnt on the latest Christian network, send that love feed, and you get a miracle. How many times have we seen that? How many people are writing texts to these places? I saw one where it says, if you give us a love feed of $500, we'll send you this little gold coin. Not real gold, by the way. You hold it in your pocket, put in your purse, and God will give you financial blessings. And it made me angry just watching it because you know how why they're on TV and why they're having this? It's because people are doing it. I think this parable, Jesus is saying, hello, be a little more shrewd than that. That's why, remember when Jesus said this? I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents, and the word is true, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. So there's a distinction there. The crooked manager in the parable, he's, he is shrewd as a snake, but he's also guilty like a snake. He's guilty in sin. And so there's a way we can be work with wisdom and shrewdness to talking about wisdom and how we can be wise somewhat in the ways of the world without getting into sin. And so again, the baseline thing of this parable is about stewardship. What are you doing with what you have? And Jesus is saying, use your money to make eternal investments. Be generous. Give out of obedience. Buy things for others. You know, somewhat, it can get a little confusing where he says, well, it seems like you're trying to buy, and Jesus is saying kind of like you're buying friendship. That's not what he's saying. But do you like to be around generous people? Most of the time we do. Or when somebody pays for a meal, there's something that touches your heart when someone does that. That's, what, that's all Jesus is saying. Use your wealth to be a blessing. 
because they're making eternal investments. He also said, and the Pharisees are over there who are fighting with their money. They, you know, they, they, you know they, they are part of almost worshiping money. That's why he says you can't serve two masters. Because money is a good servant, but it's a horrible master. And it will master you. And use it as a servant to be generous. But don't let it ruin and rule your life. Does your life revolve around it? Making the next buck. Are you stingy? Are you worried about money all the time? And that's why in verses 14 and 15 it says, you know, God, you can't serve both God and money. And the Pharisees that said, they, you know, who loved money heard this and they were sneering at him. And he said, you justify yourself in the eyes of others. What rules you? And Jesus said, be shrewd, be wise, but use your money to bless and be a blessing in the kingdom of God. Because I found out this. When you die, you don't get to take any of it with you as much as you think you will. So be generous. All right. So we're, we're coming in here. This is kind of our lightning round. Those first two were a little lengthy. This is our lightning round. You guys are all grateful about that, I can tell. It's just some quick rapid-fire questions. What does Luke 9, 27 mean? Jesus saying, I'll tell you the truth, some of you standing here will not take that before they see the kingdom of God. And so, Jesus has mentioned that this is the same passage as the parallel passage in Matthew 628 and Mark 9.1. In each of these Gospels, the next event immediately after this is the Mount of Transfiguration. You guys understand that? Remember when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, he takes them up to this mountain. And it says that his appearance changes and his, his clothing was white. His, I mean, he was radiant. And then Moses and Elijah are there talking with him. And so he is transfigured into this glorious state. They see it. They fall down like dead men as they're watching this unfold. And so he's transfigured and he's in his kind of his fullness of his glory. And so each time you hear that, when Jesus has said to someone who is standing here will not take death, in all three of those Gospels, they immediately is happening is the Mount of Transfiguration. And so rather than interpreting Jesus' promises referring to his coming to establish the kingdom on earth, because that would mean that you know, some of them standing there would live until he returns again. That's why some people have been confused with this. It's like, well, are those people still around somewhere? No, they're not. And so instead of interpreting it as his establishment of being on earth, the context indicates that Jesus was referring to the transfiguration. The Greek word translated kingdom, that you will see the kingdom of God, can also be translated into royal splendor, meaning that the three disciples standing there, they would get a glimpse of him in his royal splendor, of the, of, of, of the splendor of Christ of how he will be in the kingdom. So they got a glimpse of him, like in Revelation, you know, when John's describing that, I think they got a glimpse of him in his glorious state. And so they get a little taste of the eternal kingdom and the glorious kingdom. Good question. I told you these are going to wrap up. Did or do animals go to heaven? All you pet lovers, this is the one you were waiting on. The short answer is this, that the Bible does not say. Well, 
do anything. People are like, I know my dog's going to do that. I mean, people will get upset with you when you start talking about, I don't know if you're done. I don't think that. They will do that. You know, okay. The Bible doesn't say it does not indicate that animals have a soul. The Bible does say that animals are given breath of life. You can see that in Genesis, 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 and that they are living beings. What separates animals and man, however, is that humanity is made in the image and the likeness of God and animals on it. There is a distinction. As much as you think that dog is your baby, there is a distinction. There is a distinction in the created order by God. And so they are not your baby. And so there is, because of that, we are spiritual, we are mental, we are emotional, and we have a will. Some people would say that describes my dog. But we aren't just simply led by our instincts. As much as person, and I understand we had a dog for a while. I understand that. Not a sad one we had to put her down. It's a tragic, sad thing. They're kind of a part of the family. But that, they don't have, there's no indication that they have a soul. It does say in the Bible that there will be animals during the millennium kingdom. Isaiah 11 and 65. But there's no way to say whether or not they will be animals or pets that live on the earth. Oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. They're part of the created order of things and perhaps will be enjoyed in the age to come. If they're pet, it, let, let, let's just do this. If your parents, pet, okay. I hope your parents are there. Um, if your pet, pet, aren't, you're not going to want a refund. I can guarantee you that when you get to heaven, and you see Jesus, you see your loved ones, you're not going to be looking around for your dog. I promise you. I'm safe to say that doctrinally. I can make a doctrine out of that. Jesus will be our everything. He will be our sufficiency. That is why it also says that there will be no marriage or given in marriage in the kingdom. Wah, wah. <laughs> Or somebody might be cheers. No, I don't know. I'm not going to touch that. Um, but Jesus will, he will satisfy every longing. We're given relationships. We're given things on the earth as a grace from God, as gifts from God to be enjoyed. It's going to be so much different there. It's going to be so much amazing beyond words. There's no way to describe it. He will sustain and fill us and fulfill us like nothing else. Question six. Instead of Chronicles thirty-one one, when Israel was cleansing the cities of Judah, one of the one of the things that they did was cut down the groves. What and how were these groves used for pagan worship? Great question. You get that word grove from the King James. Some of the original language had grove, but the original word for grove used here in other places is a word that you'll be familiar with if you read like NIV. Like Astra, have you ever heard of that? In worship, Astropos, that's the same word, the original word for grove was the word Astra, referring to, they were trying to a fertility goddess. They were not just forest groves of trees in general. So God was not making this like a, you know, cut all those trees down, you know, it's bad. You shouldn't have trees. No, he's not saying that. He's saying there's nothing wrong with having trees. It's just a, Another example of God's repeated warnings against idolatry. 
And when the people of God would sometimes remove idols, they would cut down the astral policies, the goddess of fertility, and they would refer to them as groves. And the only reason is that there was a possibility they were put up like groves, and they were, you know, these little shrines, and they would put them up, and they would walk into them as a place of worship, and God frowned on all kinds of idolatry and false worship. And so it wasn't just trees, it was talking about something specifically. Doing good? In Lamentations 2.11b, what does it mean my bile is poured on the ground? Graphic. Middle school boys dreamed out a question like this. So let's read it in context. I mean, it's pretty hard-hitting, pretty heavy. Jeremiah writes, that the Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the ramp on the wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. The king and the princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and the prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep in silence. They throw dust in their heads and burn themselves with sackcloth. And I'm reading this kind of a New King James where you get the exact wording of that. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. My eyes fail with tears. Here comes as my heart is troubled. My bile is poured on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. What is going on here is written by Jeremiah. Here's things. He's called the weeping prophet. These are his laments and lamentations. This is a graphic aching of what is happening to the people of God. Why are they here? Why all of this graphic talk is they have done what I said at the beginning. They have denied God. They have pushed God away in every sense. They said, we're going to follow our own ways. We're going to do it our own way. We're going to worship whatever we want to worship. We want to remove you. We're going to set up these false idols. And so because of the consequences of their sin, God is allowing destruction to come upon them. Captivity, there were all kinds of consequences for their sin because there is consequences. There are consequences for our sin. And that's something that we can understand when you see it here is God is allowing them to kind of do whatever they want to do and then suffer the consequences of that. They are running towards the proverbial cliff and He's letting them just run right off of it. Because he's warned them over. And they say, well, isn't God merciful? Oh, he spoke to them so many times in love and repentance. He said, come back to God. Come back to God. Please don't go your own way. And they were bent on doing it. So let that even sink into our own hearts. And so it's this, it's this description that Jeremiah is writing about. It's literally gut-wrenching. When you hear what bowels or those things as the inward parts of the affections, here's a couple of commentaries. Far commentary, the liver, as the heart was regarded by the Jews as the seat of intellect, so the liver or the bowels was supposed to be the seat of the emotions. And so, when we say I love you with all my what heart, they would say I love you with all my bowels. Maybe I don't know, but whatever you need to do with that. But it was the seed of the emotions, the pouring out of the vial upon the ground meant that feelings had entirely given away under the acuteness of sorrow, and he could no longer restrain them. He's grieved, because as a prophet, he would see it. 
It's like a parent when you see your kid making horrible decisions and you, you, you get a little big, you get, you know, get a big picture, um, kind of seeing what, what's happening, where they're headed, and you would just grieve for them that you cannot stop them no matter how hard you try, no matter what you say. There's nothing going to stop them from going off. And so Jeremiah, this aching, grieving prophet, is feeling this. And so Wesley, Wesley's commentary says that he said, this whole verse is, an expre- is but expressive of the prophet's great affliction for the miseries that are coming upon the Jews. He says he wept himself almost blind. He's, and he's referring to his bowels. He says his passion had disturbed his body so much and his very insides were very troubled. Have you ever been that much affliction stars where you feel like your insides are becoming out? That kind of grief, that kind of sorrow, that's the description here. And so there's more, it's more like, you know, almost almost poetic in anguish of what's happening for the people of God. And so this passage as well as how it starts to remind us that there's a God in heaven that is the ultimate, righteous, and true judge. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except through me. There's no one like God. There's none above Him. There's no one telling Him what to do. And there's no one on His level, as much as we think that we might be. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Do not lose the power and significance of what that means, although you've heard it a million times. He is in control. We are not. We are not here to make up our own rules and to live according to our own flesh and to do what is right in our own eyes. We weren't weren't intended to call the shot, but we were called to humbly submit our lives to the one who is calling the shot. In Job's story, your suffering is not wasted, although it might be mysterious. So let him be in charge. The Israelites fell under chaos and destruction as a consequence for their removing the Lordship of God and making their own rules. When you bring yourself outside the Lordship of Christ and His loving salvation and life lived in Him, you will have it your way, but it's not a way that you will want to live. Because God is he's the eternal one, and His Word is the eternal Word of life. And so the question in all of these things, who's in control of your life? The Bible says, behold, today is, the day. today is the day of salvation. Repent, turn to Him, get things right that you need to get right, give your life to Him in a new way today, and it will be the greatest life you ever live. So let's pray. God, thank You for this day. Lord, I pray that we would understand that Your Word is truth, that You are truth, and that You are good, and You do everything well. Lord, I pray, God, today as we talked about your word and we look at these questions, Lord, that they would hit home to us, God, that we would not live our own way, that we would not do whatever's right in our own eyes, but to look to you as the standard, look to your word as the standard of truth. God, I pray for those who might be here, they might be suffering at some level, God, that you would touch them and encourage them. And Lord, as much as maybe well-meaning people have tried to put you in a box and define you and try to have a bunch of answers, God. Uh, Lord, help them to see that their suffering is not wasted. 
Lord, if there, is, uh, if there are those here that are suffering because of sinful choices, I pray God that they would run to you and run to your mercy. And that ultimately, Lord God, we would put you first place in our life, that we would live lives surrendered, that we would be like Job, who said, I've, I've heard of you, but now I've seen you. Lord, let us see you every day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Sit still and have a bonus question. I'm going to leave you with it. I thought it was done. Can we do more outreach? Is that was one of the questions? I'm glad you asked. There is a huge one being planned called the Big Sur. We actually had a meeting this past Wednesday where a few of us got together. Um, August 9th is going to be a weekend of serving our community, loving our community, different service projects. One of them, um, I'm gonna, we're going to start meeting hall next week. We're going to have a, a big, uh, like an old watch basin back there. I want you to start bringing quarters. Have your kids bring quarters. Nothing less than a quarter. Okay, we need quarters. Uh, what we're going to do, a part of that weekend is it's called Laundry Love. We're going to be putting rolls of quarters. We're going to go down to the laundromat and one of our teams down there, and they're going to be blessing people and helping them and giving them quarters to walk close. And we're going to love our community. This is, again, different service projects. We're going to send groups and teams out. If you don't have the energy to do that, we might have you here making meals for some people that could use meals. And then on Sunday, we're doing this. Um, if you guys have been a part of our family fun night across the street here, um, Sunday morning, our service is going to be dedicated to loving our community. We're going to be having live music. I'll share the gospel briefly. Um, and, but we're going to be loving um, our community, doing fun games and stuff. We're even going to have a circus tent. You'll want to be there. And so the big service coming So yes, there are outreaches on the horizon. Um, I encourage you to be a part of that. There will be more planning meetings coming. If you want to come to those uh, and to help us out, that would be great. I think next Sunday, right after service, we're having another one. If you'd like to be a part of that, we just ask you to bring a dish to pass, make sure the dish has food in it. Um, and so we'll have lunch upstairs, and we're going to be chatting and, and uh, kind of further planning. So be great for you guys to be a part of that. Love you guys. Thank you for today. Thank you for your attendance. God bless, and have a great week.